From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, malaria puts a huge social and economic burden on the countries where it is prevalent. While there are treatments for malaria, there is no vaccine to prevent infection, and in Southeast Asia, drug resistance is emerging to the frontline therapy for severe malaria. Malaria control programs historically have focused on controlling mosquitoes with bed nets and insecticides and treating infections. This strategy is working, And as Dr. Caroline Bucky explains on today's episode, significant reductions in morbidity and mortality have occurred since the 2000s. With this improvement, researchers are now focusing on going further and working towards a goal that for decades was seen as impossible, eradication. Dr. Caroline Bucky is an assistant professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and is the associate director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, She works with experimental researchers to understand the molecular mechanisms within the host that underlie disease and infection, and uses genomic and mobile phone data to link these individual level processes to understand population level patterns of transmission. Hello, Dr. Bucky. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about how you got started in research? Um, Sure. So I actually started out as a zoologist. Um, interested in evolutionary theory. And then uh, gradually, I became more interested in human health. Um, As I did a lot of field work overseas, it became apparent to me that inequities in access to healthcare in different parts of the world were just so glaring and um, unfair that I started to get more interested in um, trying to think about pathogens that affect vulnerable populations in low-income settings, um, especially infectious diseases of children. So I did a master's in bioinformatics um, where I worked on malaria parasite genetics. And then after that, I did my PhD at Oxford. um, And my PhD was all mathematical modeling, um, thinking about the dynamics of pathogen populations. So how different strains circulate in a population and affect people differently and how that can lead to patterns and distributions of disease. And then after that, continuing my interest in travel and being out in the field, I moved to Kenya to work on malaria parasite um, immunology, and especially trying to understand patterns of immune responses to malaria in children. Um, And then uh, following that, I moved to the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. So that's a complex systems research institute. Um, It's a lot of people that are interested in the kind of mathematical aspects of complex systems. And um, malaria and infectious diseases in general are a classic complex system because they involve nonlinear feedbacks and uh, complicated dynamics. I was there for a few years, um, sort of commuting between Kenya and Oxford and Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was Uh, arduous, but uh, interesting. Uh, And that's before I came to Harvard about seven years ago. You study malaria pathogenesis and why some people get it and others do not. Why is it difficult to study malaria? 
Um, well, first of all, um, we don't really understand the disease process for malaria. We don't know why some people are carrying parasites and they're completely unaffected, and other people are carrying parasites and they're really sick and and we, there are many different types of disease. So you could have severe malarial anemia or cerebral malaria. Um, and, and we still don't understand the sort of molecular mechanisms that drive those pathogenic outcomes. Um, and one of the reasons that it's difficult to study this pathogen is because it's, um, unlike a virus or a bacteria, it's a large eukaryotic parasite um, transmitted by mosquitoes. It has a sexual um, stage in the mosquito midgut, and its its life cycle within the host, within the human, is also extremely complicated. So there are different morphologies of the parasite at different stages in the human host, um, and many of the stages that are that we think are important for disease, you can't study easily. So um, for other pathogens, we have mouse models or some other kind of animal models. In malaria, um, because the parasite is so host-specific, you can't study human malaria in animal models very easily. One of the other things is that what the parasite does when it's in your bloodstream is it expresses these proteins that bind to capillary vessels, so these small vessels at the periphery of your body, and, it, and that blocks the parasite in these small blood vessels. So when you take blood from um, somebody infected with malaria, you're only seeing a very small subset of the infected cells that are in their body, and the rest might be hidden away in the periphery. And the parasite does this by expressing these proteins, and it has this large repertoire of different proteins that it can turn on and off. Um, and what that does is it sets up an arms race between the parasite and the immune system. So the parasite will express one particular protein and your body will try and generate an immune response to that protein um, and then it will switch to another one. And then your body has to try and generate another immune response to the next protein um, in a process called antigenic variation. And what that means is that your infections can last a very, very long time. So you can have low density infections that last for hundreds of days. Um, and you know, obviously that's very difficult to study, both because um, the culturing the parasite is hard, um, understanding the epigenetics and the, the sort of mechanisms by which it switches on and off these genes is hard, and then studying these low-density asymptomatic infections in people is difficult as well. So we're never quite sure whether there are really parasites in there or not, um, and it's hard to do, to do that work. Considering the difficulty in studying malaria, how do you study malaria? Yeah, so so because um, studying the parasite in vivo is extremely difficult, um, that's where mathematical models can be useful. So I work very closely with Manoj Juraising, who's at the um, who's at HSPH in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease, and he's a molecular geneticist and he studies invasion of malaria parasites into red blood cells, among other things. Um, and so when you have molecular findings like that and you want to understand how that might affect pathogenesis in the body, since we don't have a good way to do experiments in humans and we don't have necessarily good animal models um, to, to look at that, we can use mathematical models to get an idea for how the molecular mechanisms that we elucidate in the lab might play out during a natural infection. So we can take the mechanisms that we know happen in the blood and then we can write down equations that we think is gonna, are going to reflect um, the dynamics of the parasite as it grows in the bloodstream. Um, and, the, and the reason that we need dynamical models, so this is a class of mathematical models, um, 
where you get nonlinear feedbacks. So rather than statistical models, we use dynamical models where we know there are these complex processes that build on themselves and have feedbacks, right? So when you have a process like the growth of the parasite in the blood, where you have you know, successive rounds of growth, lysis of the cell, and then repeated rounds of invasion, you need a nonlinear kind of model to understand how that growth might happen exponentially when the parasite invades um, the, the bloodstream. The other function of mathematical models in this context is to uh, generate testable hypotheses, right? So we see a, an observation in the lab. We can use a mathematical model to make a prediction about what we think will happen in a person. And then we can go in the field and test that and see if we see, you know, um, if we make a prediction about how a particular invasion process is going to affect the overall level of parasites in the blood, we can then go in the field and check and see if our hypothesis was correct um, or if we see correlations that are consistent with our model. And if we don't, then we can use that information to design other experiments and, and continue that process. So it's, it's in, very interdisciplinary in the sense that you, know, you're, you require people with expertise in, in the experimental lab work, then we apply models, then we look in the field, and you, know, you can imagine that requires um, a lot of collaboration and people with different expertise. I really enjoy that kind of work, the sort of collaborative interdisciplinary aspect of the work. How big of a problem is malaria? Uh, malaria is still a major global health problem. So it's still, um, it kills over 500,000 people each year. Um, mostly, um, nearly 95% of that is children under the age of five and pregnant women in sub-Saharan Africa primarily. Um, but in addition to the costs and mortality, there's also a massive burden of morbidity with um, hundreds of millions of people becoming infected each year. Um, and then mild forms of the disease can be flu-like. And so there's a huge economic burden as well uh, because people miss work. So from a developmental perspective, uh, malaria is, is, uh, places a massive both economic and health burden on endemic countries. The burden of malaria um, is enormous. So it's over 500,000 deaths each year due to malaria, mostly in children under five in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and more than that, the burden of morbidity, so just people not going to work and having seasonal malaria and all of this is incredibly costly and it's keeping um, endemic countries down economically as well. So from a development perspective and a poverty alleviation perspective, it's also really important to get to try and move towards elimination. So for decades, people just assumed that eradication was not feasible. And then the sort of economic burden that malaria places on endemic countries um, was, was looked at and people started to think, you know, we can't, we can't be just controlling this disease forever, right? We have to move towards eradication. Um, the feasibility is, is controversial. It's not clear that we'll be able to totally eradicate the parasite. Um, but that has been the agenda following significant gains in reductions in morbidity and mortality in the early 2000s. Suddenly this was put back on the table like, okay, we need to actually eliminate this parasite. How do you prevent and control malaria? So malaria is um, unlike viral some viral and bacterial pathogens there's no vaccine against malaria part of the reason for that is that it's massively genetically diverse so it's not clear which proteins or antigens to put into the vaccine um, so the way that we control 
and prevent malaria is actually through a combination of different interventions. Bed nets, insecticide-treated bed nets is a very important one. Um, indoor residual spraying of insecticides, so mosquito control, right? Vector control is still the cornerstone of uh, malaria prevention strategies. And then as far as treatment goes, uh, we, have, we still have uh, some effective drugs to which the parasite is is not resistant. Although worryingly, there is now uh, drug resistance emerging in Southeast Asia to uh, the frontline therapy for severe malaria. So we have treatment and we have prevention, um, but none of those alone are going to be sufficient to control and reduce transmission to zero, which is why there's so much effort to, to develop new tools to control transmission. A lot of the work we do is trying to think about how national malaria control programs use those interventions in different parts of the country where malaria is prevalent in order to try and reduce transmission and provide treatment effectively. Uh, trying to understand those resource allocation questions is a lot of what we do. National malaria control programs are responsible for allocating resources and deciding where to place interventions. So they're responsible for distributing bed nets and organizing indoor residual spraying campaigns, as well as allocating treatment um, across health clinics. Um, and understanding how malaria transmission varies in space and time across your country, which is what national malaria control programs have to do, is essentially a spatial ecology problem. And so that is where my expertise fits in. Can you define spatial ecology? So in the context of malaria, spatial ecology is simply the, the distribution, the geographic distribution and dynamics of disease burden and transmission potential. So you could think about spatial ecology of the mosquito vectors, which is often very seasonal. It responds to rainfall and temperature. And then where the people are in, in space, um, and how they're moving around, and then what that means for the dynamics and distribution of malaria transmission. How do you use mobile phones to study disease transmission? Well, we use mobile phone data um, as a, a proxy for human travel. So we use uh, data which is routinely stored by operators to look at the distribution and dynamics of the human population that drives malaria transmission. And we use that data to model mobility patterns. So the way it works is that um, every time somebody makes a call or a text, the mobile phone operator logs a cell tower ID for that action. And if you know the latitude and longitude of the cell tower, then you can build up a trace of where that person is over time. And so obviously um, you can scale that to millions of people now that mobile phone penetration is so complete in many of these places. And you can start to ask questions about the distribution and dynamics of human populations and what that might mean for the spread of malaria in space and time. We use the mobile phone data essentially as a way to parameterize mobility models. And then we combine those mobility models with epidemiological models in order to make predictions about how the parasite is spreading between different areas of a country. What are some challenges you've come across in using mobile phones? Mobile phone data is, is incredibly sensitive, right? It's private, personal information. And when it's uh, recorded by mobile phone operators, it is, there's no, um, this is passively observed population level data. So there's no consent process. And what that means is that it's absolutely critical, both 
with respect to national regulations, but also from an ethics perspective, that we make sure that the data is aggregated um, to an extent where we can never we can never back calculate an individual's trajectory from the data. So we have to work very hard to make sure that we don't violate any legal or ethical um, guidelines with respect to individual privacy when we use this data. And what that means is that there are many, many political hurdles when you try and work with operators to do this. Mobile phone operators aren't really incentivized to share their data um, because we're not offering them any kind of financial compensation. It's purely for the good of the you know, national control programs. Um, and so it's a very lengthy process to negotiate those data sharing agreements and to work with operators and ministries of health to get the letters of agreement in place and try and make sure that all of the privacy rules and regulations are kept in mind. And um, you know, so we have protocols where we the, all the data stays within the firewall of the operator. They do all the processing and aggregation and we only see very highly aggregated matrices. And that, that ensures privacy, but it also takes a long time. And, and it's, it relies on these kind of uh, negotiations and personal relationships with operators in country. I think one of the biggest challenges is in the future is going to be developing analytical pipelines to get mobile phone data formatted by the operators and then directly sent to control programs to input into their mapping exercises. Um, and you know, developing those relationships and networks uh, is, is very challenging. Before we had this data, especially in low-income countries, there was just simply no way to measure human mobility at scale. So either people used very small-scale travel survey data or small GPS studies, or they looked at census data. But there was really, there was really no information about regional and national human mobility patterns. And so this data has really opened up a whole new avenue of research for trying to understand the spatial ecology of human populations. And of course, that doesn't just apply to malaria. You know, the spatial travel patterns of people um, is critical for all disease spread. So during the Ebola outbreak, for example, human mobility was absolutely key. Um, and travel restrictions were some of the first uh, containment strategies that were put in place in West Africa for that reason. So the, these data are not only useful for malaria. They're, they're useful more generally for trying to understand the human population dynamics uh, that spread disease uh, more generally. Almost everybody, even in, say in rural Bangladesh, has access to a mobile phone. Many of the phones are shared. People switch SIM cards in and out. Um, there'll be one phone for a whole household. And so we have to take care that we clean our data and throw out anything that looks vaguely suspicious. So right, if there's a phone that's clearly making 100 calls a day, that's probably somebody in a village who's you know, loaning out their phone or something like this. So the, the advantage of working with big data, so these data sets are enormous. The advantage is that we have, uh, you know, for example, in our study that we did in Pakistan, there were 40 million subscribers in that data set over nine months. With data of that size, you can throw away a lot of it and you still have a huge amount of information. So we, we take a lot of care to make sure that we're um, getting rid of outliers so that we're confident that we're getting sort of a good signal. The other thing is, of course, is that mobile phone markets are fragmented. 
And so you want to make sure when you do this kind of work, you want to make sure that the operator has a, a significant proportion of the market share. So you're getting a reasonable sample of the population and also that they're not marketing to a very specific demographic. So they're not, you know, the rich people's operator or something like this. So you want to you, you do have to be careful about um, about sampling because it's it's very difficult to um, assess kind of how robust your samples are. We're working on using um, surveys to validate some of the mobile phone work that we're doing. So we we combine surveys on how people are using their phones and who has phones and their demographics with mobile phone data so that we can get a better understanding of who we're missing in our data sets. What other projects are you working on? So I recently uh, got a small grant to do a uh, an exciting project that combines uh, environmental and climate modeling with uh, infectious disease epidemiology. So in West Africa, there are seasonal epidemics of meningitis, which is caused by a bacterial pathogen called Neisseria meningitidis. And these seasonal outbreaks correspond with um, winds, dusty winds uh, that Come, come across uh, the whole region and they cause these meningitis outbreaks. And the outbreaks correlate strongly with the onset and severity of the Harmattan winds each year. And so nobody really knows why they're so strongly correlated, whether it's something to do with individual susceptibility to getting disease or more controversially, whether it's actually being spread on the in the wind. So um, I've teamed up with Elsie Sunderland, who is a professor in the School of Engineering and Applied Scientists. She's a, cli a climate modeler. And we are going to work with a collaborator of mine who uses helium balloons to look at uh, long-distance dispersal of, of mosquitoes in Mali. And we're going to uh, develop filters to try and capture bacterial samples during these harmattan winds using the helium balloons. And then we'll sequence them and see whether we can identify human pathogenic organisms in these harmattan winds. So there's been a um, an increase in interest in, in long-distance dispersal of human pathogens in the air and in dust um, recently, now that we have these genomic techniques to actually start looking and sampling in these kinds of um, environments. And in fact, there have been uh, there have been a number of different human pathogens that have been found in different types of dust and um, in wind. So uh, we're excited about that. It's a it's a, it's a small pilot project, but I'm, I'm pretty excited. None of these projects would be possible without close collaborative relationships with people in the field. And, you know, I think that's essential for any meaningful work, especially if you're actually interested in informing policy. You have to have those connections because otherwise it's all theoretical and you don't actually, you're not able to interpret the data effectively and uh, let alone try and have impact. From my perspective, one of the reasons I love doing theory is because it allows me to some extent to be a jack of all trades. So I get to work on questions of, you know, within host dynamics and pathogenesis. I get to work on questions of epidemics of meningitis and wind. I get to work on questions about the spatial dynamics of humans in Bangladesh. So um, being a theoretical researcher who has broad collaborative um, relationships globally means that I get to kind of um, do a very diverse portfolio of research, which is really fun to me. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Bucky. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me.
Next time on Think Research. That was it. I came back from that meeting. I took my whole team, put them in the office. We had a powwow and it was basically, this is what we're going to do. And what we've created since then in a very short period of time is a technology that allows you to actually see oxygen in tissue. Hear how a chance meeting led to the development of a bandage that could give physicians a new way to measure tissue health. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.